which leads me to my one and only hard and fast rule of practice, both for myself and for the people that I work with. And there's only one, which is practice today in a way that makes you excited and eager and interested to practice again tomorrow. Because really what we're looking at here is sustainability of practice. Welcome to This Is Aging, a podcast on a mission to explore the upside of getting older. We're your hosts, Dana Schultz and Melissa Reeves, two friends approaching midlife who are fed up with anti-aging culture and refuse to believe that life is all downhill after 40. We believe life can get better with age and we're here with the stories to prove it. Join us and our inspiring guests as we flip the aging narrative on its head and trade fear for curiosity and celebration. Hey everyone, Melissa here. I'm so excited for this episode. This is one of the favorites of both Dana and I's that we've recorded over the last few months with David Wilson and the impact that this has had on my personal experience of my body and of movement has been really profound. Something that I have been working with and working towards for years, if not decades, has felt like it has really come into focus and into integration in a super short period of time since having this conversation. So I'm really excited for you to hear it and to work with what comes up for you as you hear his approach to movement that is so different from the fitness narratives that we hear in our culture, especially around the new year. So this is a really amazing time to be encountering this conversation. I also wanted to let you know that at the end of our conversation, we recorded a video practice with David where he shares a really beautiful, intuitive movement practice that we will post in the show notes on our website, as well as on social media. So when you're done listening to the episode, I recommend that you go and find that video clip on our website and just sit with this practice. Let it be a guide for you in finding perhaps a new way of interacting with your body and with movement. And I think you're going to find it really nourishing. For those of you that have been following the podcast and following me on social media, you probably know that in February, I am facilitating a retreat called Threshold here in Austin. That's going to be February 1st to 4th. And we are going to be gathering women from around the country to connect around the thresholds, the deep life transitions that we go through using a really powerful framework for leaning into the surrender that your transition wants from you so that you can actually move into a new stage of your life and find purpose and wholeness. I'd love to have you join me whether you're going through one of the big external obvious thresholds like a divorce or the transition to motherhood or a big career change or if it's just a more subtle internal transition of the heart, wanting to become more aligned, more vibrant, more alive. This is also for you if you just want to grow in your skills of navigating transition and your skills of holding space for others that are going through transition. We've got an amazing group of women coming together that I'm so excited to be with. So check out all the information on my website, melissareves.com. There will also be a link in the show notes of this episode, and I'd love to have you. All right, let's dive in with David. Welcome to today's episode of This is Aging. 
We're thrilled to have a really special guest with us today, David Wilson of Old School Moves. You can see his t-shirt. Maybe you've seen him on Instagram before. He has a really incredible channel where he shares all kinds of movement practices, and he is a really big advocate for anti-ageism in the space. Um, David actually, in his work with movement, really focuses on a compassionate, playful approach and helping people as they go through midlife and their elder years, really connecting with movement and with their bodies in a way that isn't just about, you know, getting in shape or looking really good, all of the things that can be so prevalent in the messaging of our modern culture. So we're really excited to have David here to share about his approach. He also runs a campaign on Instagram called Move for Tomorrow, um, which is about celebrating and supporting all the ways that we move through our lives. So David, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with the big question. How old are you? I am 64 years old. 64. Okay. And how did this all begin for you? We know a little bit of your backstory, but our our listeners probably won't. Can you tell us how this all started? How did you get into this work and your approach to movement? Sure, sure. Uh, So I am not an athlete. I was not a mover for the vast majority of my life. Uh, I would say that I explored movement every now and then because I felt that I had to. So for example, I, I I would buy an expensive bicycle and then use it for maybe a year and then the tires would deflate and I wouldn't maintain it and then I would just give it up. Or I would buy a gym membership and like most people with gym memberships, I'd go to the gym for a while and then you know, I'd fall out of the habit for a little bit. And I remember buying myself some rollerblades and whatever, <laughs> you know, like, like many, many, many people. I, I understood that some type of quote unquote exercise was good for me. And I did it, but kind of sort of under duress, not because I really wanted to, but simply because I thought that I had to. Until... Uh, about my 40s when I got in, interested in a soft martial art known as Aikido. And I liked that because of the community and mm. parts of the movement that I, I liked as well, but also there were parts of it that I didn't really like that much. But again, I did it because it was good for me, but at least that built a couple of things for me, which was one, the understanding of the importance of uh moving within a community, I was able to stick with that endeavor for much longer than I had been able to stick with anything else. And it also began in the ways that I was dissatisfied with it to help me to understand how a good number of the barriers that we have to movement have to do with with really what's between the ears and our approaches to movement. I mean, take a look at what we typically call doing exercise, which is work out. Mm -hmm. So we're already coming to it with an attitude of, okay, this is going to be work. Uh, It's going to be unpleasant. I can't expect uh, for there to be pleasure or delight or all of those things. So even then, it's still premature for me to actually be able to articulate those ideas. But I think that those are where those ideas began, especially when I ended up leaving that practice because a few things happened that make, made me quite miserable. Mm. And this would have been when I was in my 50s. And 
I went back to this idea of, okay, well, I have to do something. <laughs> you know, I, I understand that ec exercise or working out is good for me, so I have to do something. And it so happened that I had purchased a kettlebell back before kettlebells were a thing. I actually per purchased it off the back of a truck. <laughs> and that sounds questionable. I, I, I know. Well, it was, it was actually from the guy who brought kettlebells to Canada, in fact, arguably to North America. And at the time, he was still trying to establish himself. He's very well established now, a guy named uh, Sean Mosen, who uh, runs Agatsu. And I bought this kettlebell from Sean Mosen off the back of his truck. Like he it, had sounds driven... like a, it sounds like the time I tried on a pair of pants in the back of a van in Amsterdam. Also questionable. All right. Not where there, one would usually procure pants or exercise or equipment, but there, hey, there, in a pinch. There you go. <laughs> so, so this this thing, like so many of the other pieces of equipment that I have referenced already in the discussion, was sitting in my basement gathering dust and rust. And I decided, okay, well, I'm going to learn how to use this thing. So I started looking for studios. And most of the studio experience was kind of, in all honesty, sort of unpleasant. Um, but then I fell into this one studio where the quality of instruction, the treating of me as a complete person, rather than just somebody showing up to do exercise, quote unquote exercise, um, was completely different. And so I asked the instructor, are there any more class, any more kettlebell classes? Because of course, in my limited understanding at the time, I'm thinking, okay, well, this is kettlebells. This is what I want. This is it. And she said, well, no, but there's this other class that you might also be interested in. And uh, the class was called Movement Lab. It is, was, is, <laughs> is still there called Movement Lab, which was a lab approach to movement. So you're looking at what you can do and also being interested in all of the things. Like, what are you finding difficult? Why are you finding it difficult? What is, how are you gathering information and making a plan with what to do with that information? Of course, there were also sets and reps and all of those things as well, but this was a different approach to me. So I ended up um, sticking with that studio, and 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 now, in fact, I'm I'm an instructor at that studio, along with all of the other things that I'm doing as well. And uh, I would say that that was the beginning of a huge healing journey for me. I had left Aikido because I was being given very clearly the message that I was getting too old, mm -hmm. and that. Uh, I should be limited in my expectations around how I could uh, develop as an Aikido practitioner and also the kinds of opportunities that I could expect to be given within the dojo. So that was why I left that particular practice and coming into a completely different space that in fact was far more physically demanding than Aikido and being given hope, being seen as a person who can learn, as a person who wants to grow, who can be curious. These were very healing things for me. And it was my arrival at that studio that set me off on the journey of who I have become, who is 
a far different person than how how I would have described myself, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Wow, the beautiful story. How do you think that the the journey through adopting a new movement practice impacted you as a person? You mentioned that you're a different person than you were maybe 10 years ago. How have you found that to be transformational for you? Mm-hmm. I've, I've always been a creative person. In fact, I used to teach creative writing, but I don't think that I applied that to other aspects of my life. And while as a, as a teacher, as a high school teacher, I always had compassion for my students. I very seldom had compassion for myself. So I've, I will frequently describe myself as a, as a perfectionist in recovery mm. where so much of what I have done in my life was beating myself up with the shoulds. And I think that this is a very common thing, especially living in the uh, socio-cultural context that we live in, where um, competence and productivity have a premium placed on them, and process and compassion basically do not. So I think that I learned to apply the same type of curiosity. And interestingly, when you have curiosity, it's very difficult to be judgmental. Mm. So feeling curious about what I was doing liberated me from this tremendous burden of judgment that I had placed upon myself and that I'd inherited from my parents and from you know, the sociocultural context within which I live. So letting go of judgment, seeing things with curiosity, and Melissa, as, as you referenced, um, Melissa, I'm sorry, uh, playfulness and compassion. So these are the three pillars of my practice. So you got two of them in the introduction. Uh, and I knew I was going to work the third one in there somehow. <laughs> Perfect. So curi curiosity, um, compassion toward myself and toward others, and, and a certain levity or playfulness. So I, of course, I cannot be joyful and delighted every time I come to practice. But if I can come to the practice with the receptivity to those things, rather than with the workout mentality where I am automatically predisposing myself to resist them and to move into old stories and, and really, in my estimation, harmful stories around no pain, no gain, then I'm putting myself in a, in a mind space where I really want to come to practice which leads me to my one and only hard and fast rule of practice, both for myself and for the people that I work with. And there's only one, which is practice today in a way that makes you excited and eager and interested to practice again tomorrow. Mm. Because really what we're looking at here is sustainability of practice. So if I go to my practice space or I come to my practice room saying, I'm going to do this number of sets at this weight and you know, I've got to practice for this long, well, what if I can't do it that day? What if that's really 
agonizing for me on that day, as it might very well be. How can I approach my movement practice in a way that is not going to be so consistently discouraging that I'm going to give it up? And it's to practice in a way, I'd always be mindful of, am I practicing in a way that's going to make me eager, excited, and interested to practice again tomorrow? Which means being able to adjust my practice to how I'm feeling on a particular day. Also not, and, and, and by doing this, I'm not necessarily being easy on myself. Sometimes what I need on a particular day is to really push myself or to really investigate something that I haven't investigated for a while or to learn something new, or go to something that I haven't done for a while, and that I really want to continue to be able to do. And so even though it might be hard to go back to something I haven't practiced in a little while, knowing that I'm going to want to do it again, I will revisit that. So it's a question of having this sustainability of practice as always the priority, building and sustaining the habit of practice, rather than having the practice be the same according to plan every day. This doesn't mean that I don't have plans, but it means that those plans have to be flexible. Because of course, we all have bodies that are changing at all stages in our lives. My body's changing, your body's changing. At all, at all of us at some point are going to experience some type of diminishment in capacity or disability, even just temporarily. So how do I plan for that? How do I create a practice that I don't have to abandon when that happens? Because it's not an if it happens, it's going to be a when it happens. And again, it doesn't necessarily need to be permanent, but all of us will experience something, whether it's a sprained ankle or whatever, that is going to limit our capacity to move and practice movement, but that doesn't mean that it needs to stop that practice entirely. So my my curiosity is largely around what are the barriers to sustainable practice for myself and for others? And how do I systematically remove those barriers? It's a highly intuitive way to approach movement, which I really appreciate because it's not something that I think, at least in America and our culture, that's generally the operative uh, way that we approach exercise. And so it's really refreshing to hear you say that. And when it comes to meeting yourself where you're at, and I love that you even said some days I do need to be challenged more. It's not that you're going to give yourself permission to take it easy. Do you give yourself permission to, for instance, hula hoop one day or do cartwheels another day? And then on another day, you want to hike a mountain. Like how much range do you give yourself and permission to really get creative and, and really embody that playfulness? as big as my curiosity, as long as I'm taking care of myself. So there is a certain level of discernment as well. So I need to be relatively confident that my body is prepared for the type of movement that I, I, I would like to explore. So for example, I would not go mountain climbing because I do not have the skill I know I don't have the skill. I suspect I might have the strength and the endurance, but I don't know those things yet. And so I would test those things out first. Uh, 
So I, I might not go mountain climbing today, but I will most certainly, and note that I'm saying not might, I will, I will most certainly go mountain climbing sometime. I mean, given, given what happens, nobody can, you know, make those kinds of plans for certain, but it's certainly my intent to do so. Yeah. However, I'm going to do so with discernment. Too too often, I see people, uh, especially in the new year, um, <laughs> January you know, create resolutions and 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 they go out there all whole hog, remembering or maybe even I- idealizing how they kind of sort of remember moving at some point in their lives, or it's just wishful thinking, and before long it's injury city because they've done too much too fast without adequate preparation and things like that. So again, this is another one of those barriers to sustainability where we have been fed this idea of no pain, no gain. So I'm going to go out there and I'm going to create pain for myself. And you know what? Good job. You're going to succeed. You will succeed in creating pain for yourself, (laughs) but I'm not so sure that you're going to succeed in building a sustainable practice. Yeah, what you are sharing is deeply moving to me. I've actually teared up several times because my 20s, really even late adolescence, 20s and 30s were hallmarked by a really punitive movement practice that at some point in time actually took over an active eating disorder and it basically became the new way of controlling my body. And I got into martial arts as well and found a lot of joy there because there was this skill building component and the interactive nature of it was really wonderful. But eventually I had to, I don't know if had to is the right word, but I chose to let those things go because they were clearly harmful to me in the Mm -hmm. way that I approached them, in the way that my mindset was. And then I experienced several years of really not accessing movement very much at all because the pendulum had swung from this really punitive way of treating my body to wanting to give myself a lot of space and rest and not knowing how to engage with movement at all without activating those earlier preconditioned ways of Mm -hmm. thinking. You know, if I were even to sometimes so little as go on a walk, I would be in the mindset of well, I wonder if I lost any weight. I wonder if my body composition Mm -hmm. is going to improve because of that. I couldn't just go on a walk, which I actually really do enjoy without mm-hmm. those additional layers creeping in. So I feel so moved by what you're sharing and so inspired by it. It's just not how we are conditioned to approach our bodies. And especially like you said, our changing bodies. And it's such a good reminder. This comes back to what our podcast is about. This is aging is a invitation to realize that we're all aging, whether you're in your twenties or your seventies mm-hmm. or your thirties or your nineties. And my body has changed so much already. I'm in my 40s. So many things Mm -hmm. have happened in my body. I've had children. I have gone through grief. I have Mm -hmm. experienced injury. I'm, you know, healing a a sprained ankle right now. I love that you mentioned that because it, it has really impacted my ability to move. So thank you for doing what you're doing. It is absolutely inspiring. I just want to say I'm I'm so sorry that you had to go through such a challenging and painful experience. And 
so much of what you described has been experienced by so many people. Yeah. And that you have found your way out the other side of that. And I can hear in your voice the emotion, but I can also hear the strength. And I can also hear the hope because you have realized that you can abandon the narratives that you have inherited that do not serve you. Whether those narratives are self-created or whether they have come from elsewhere, we get to create and recreate our stories. And we have opportunities at all stages of our lives to assess, take stock, and look at the stories we're telling ourselves and asking ourselves whether those stories are true. And I also loved all of the things that you mentioned around your own body and how your body's changing. What wonderful opportunities those are to see at all stages of life, what are we willing to let go of? But also, what are the opportunities right now? Mm. Because there are you know, tremendous opportunities at all stages of life, just as there are things that sometimes we have to let go of and sometimes we want to let go of. So thank you very much for sharing your story. Thank you for that reflection. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people that I've spoken to, one of the primary fears they have around aging is loss and mobility and pain. And I'm just wondering what your personal mindset and perspective is around that reality that many of us, as you mentioned earlier, will experience loss of mobility in some way and may also experience pain in some way. How do you approach that in your own practice and with your own clients? Mm -hmm. Do you have a preference over which of those two questions you would like me to answer first? And then can you put a pin in the other one? Because I really want to answer it as well. I'd say go for it, whichever one speaks to you more. So I think that there is a very interesting intersection that exists between ageism and ableism. And the fear of disability is ableism. Of course, we associate disability, frailty, fragility, decrepitude with age as well. But the fear over those things is actually ableism. So I guess I would ask, what gives our lives meaning? And I could have a very meaningful life with any, with any number of physically limiting factors. This does not mean that the meaning of my life is significantly altered. And I'm sure that you could point to dozens of examples in your own lives, with the people that you know, of, of, of people who have conditions that impose physical limitations on them, and yet they are among the most engaged, the most interesting, the most joyful, delighted, playful, creative people you know. And so this is one of the narratives that uh, I, I have let go of in my own life, that there is a link between my physical capacity 
and being able to engage in my world in a meaningful way that contributes to the world in which I live, to my community, to my community of all living beings. I can still participate positively, very positively and very meaningfully without needing to necessarily be able to do all of the things that I can do right now. Yeah. I think, thanks for that yeah. distinguish. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just yeah. D- d- distinguishing the two because I personally harbor a fear of like I sometimes I think my worst nightmare would be to not be able to go on a daily walk or to move my body in the ways that I want because I do derive so much joy and meaning from them. Mm-hmm. Um so I appreciate sh- you sharing your perspective on it because it's it's softening my fear around that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have access to joy and meaning. You just said it. Which means you have joy and meaning within you. So those things are not dependent on your physical capacity. One of my great influences uh, is the woman who wrote This Chair Rocks, an anti-ageism manifesto, a woman Mm -hmm. named Ashton Applewhite. And... She talks about how the bowl looks much differently from inside the ring. And I love this. I love this. She has a real talent for, for, for wording things in a very memorable way. And what she means by that is we think that, that for example, aging or being experiencing a physical limitation or disability is going to be one thing when we're imagining it. But it's a much, much different thing when we're in it. So, for example, when I was in my 20s, I couldn't imagine being in my 30s. I clearly remember sitting in a pizza joint with my best friend at the time. And I have no idea how we came up with this number, but we had both decided that we were going to be dead by the age of 32. (laughs) Living a really reckless life, I assume. (laughs) <laughs> and, and neither of us were, were, were particularly reckless. I mean, we were English scholars. We spent wow. most of our time reading. And, and, life and, on and, the and, edge. And, yeah, life on the 32. edge. And yet, yeah, 32. And yet we were convinced that we were both going to be dead by the age of 32. And of course, this was ageism at work, right? The inability to imagine a life beyond our 20s. But to kind of get to the point that I was sort of trying to make it, I derailed myself in the process. Good job, David. Um, it's a great was, detour. <laughs> yeah, there there we go. Well, I had to tell that story. I think that's the first time I've told that story publicly. So there you go. It's We're a We're honored to have it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I could not have imagined the 64 that I am experiencing. This was unimaginable to me. In fact, it was unimaginable to me even five years ago. So have confidence in yourself. Have confidence in your ability to adjust and adapt because this is what aging well means. It's not holding on fruitlessly and pointlessly to what is going to vanish anyway. It's not holding on to wishful thinking. It's adjusting and adapting so that you can find that meaning, find that joy, to use your word, in 
the circumstances that are presenting themselves to you now, because guess what? That's life. Like you do not find meaning and joy in the same way that you found meaning and joy when you were eight years old, right? Yeah. Or how about 18? Definitely or how different. About, <laughs> Definitely how, different. <laughs> how about 28? Yeah. And, and now I'm getting up into the guessing game around your age. So I'm not going to go beyond there, but I'll bet that you couldn't imagine when you were eight what would give you meaning and joy when you are the age now, or even when you were 18. So have confidence in yourself to adapt and adjust and find that meaning and joy at any age. And stop listening to the anti-aging industry. It would have you believe that there is only meaning and joy if you are either young or you can preserve the appearance of being young or acting young, because it's all BS. Your experience at your Aikido? Aikido, yeah. Mm -hmm. Aikido. Was that your first experience with ageism? Is that how you would describe that experience uh, as ageism? Or was it just they were they were maybe trying to treat you with caution? Or how would you describe that experience? Painful. Mm. <laughs> um, painful because I, I, I mean, look at me, you know, I'm white, middle class, male. I've grown up with all the privilege. I would say maybe not the socioeconomic privilege, not when I was a kid anyway. I, you know, I, I, we weren't exactly poor, but we certainly weren't middle class. Um, but then that privilege came with education and all of the opportunities to education that came with being born when I was born and having the genetics and the brain and the encouragement that I received. So when I began to experience ageism, it was like, whoa, like my age has something to do with me, but it's not the defining factor. Like, yeah, you can use my age to describe me, but it shouldn't be a limiter or a disqualifier. So I saw myself and, and in fact, objectively from some of my friends in, at the dojo at the time, I was doing quote unquote, just as well as other people who had been practicing for the length of time that I had, but I was starting to be ignored. So I wasn't being given the same kind of attention from the senior instructors. I was kind of being left to figure things out on my own. And then when I talked to one of my friends, he said, yeah, we've, I've actually heard senior instructors talking, talking about you in this way. And it was painful to realize that I could be discriminated against for something over which I had no control. But one of the very great gifts of that was because I had lived in my little silo of privilege for the vast majority of my life, this now completely blew open my mind to social justice in general and to all of the ways that people have been discriminated against and have experienced prejudice and stereotyping. And how there are so many, so many ways in which we suggest wrongly that only certain bodies have value and that some bodies have more value than others if they look a certain way. This has been completely liberating to me. So in a very ironic way, experiencing ageism 
woke me up. Yeah, I do think it, we've talked about that with other guests as well, that age, age is something that we all experience. So it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your gender is. It doesn't matter any of those other factors. We all get older. And so it does have this ability or this potential to bring that awareness, to bring that consciousness. And I think it's one of the reasons I'm so compelled by this conversation. Even in my 40s, I already experienced some of the ways that I'm becoming invisible as a, as a mother, as someone that isn't in my prime any longer, that isn't appealing in some ways that I once was. And it's, it's already happened to me. And, and that is... That, I think, is one of the epiphanies that I've had since I, I began focusing more on the anti-ageism work, which is work, working toward disrupting ageism is actually more of a service to people who are younger than it is to people who are my age, because you have way more time, presumably, if you know life takes its normal course, you have way more time to experience ageism than I have. And think about it. Think about the number of people in their 20s who are terrified of turning 30. I mean, I told you that story <laughs> myself, right? Why? Ageism. Yeah. So we start feeling this burden in our 20s or even younger. So there are teenagers getting Botox. And, 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 a significant number of teenagers wanting plastic surgery or wanting to get Botox to uh, hide even the suggestion of a wrinkle. Right. So yeah. teenagers have 85 years left in their lives, probably, if our life expectancy continues to increase. Can you imagine laboring under the burden of ageism for 85 years. Yeah. And Even those... in what you were saying, where, where you yourself described yourself as less attractive than you once were. Why? You're pretty attractive. I'm, and, and I'm and... not saying that I'm not. It's just that the standards are constantly skewing exactly. more and exactly. more. So the teenagers that you're talking about are now dealing with Instagram and Snapchat filters mm -hmm. where there are all of these features that are exaggerated and others that are minimized. And mm -hmm. so it's not just that I'm now in real life comparing myself to a person next to me with typical qualities. I'm now comparing mm -hmm. myself to someone online that has completely altered and changed yes. their appearance. Yes. So the, it's only becoming more and more problematic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's all rooted. So all of the isms, all of the isms are rooted in the same thing. So when we disrupt one ism, we begin disrupting them all. So mm -hmm. all of the isms are rooted in the same thing, that some people have more value than others for reasons that are completely arbitrary and that actually change given the time, as you just referenced, that we are undergoing a significant change in our idea around which types of bodies have greater value than others because of the influence of 
um, AI and social media and all of those things. So these things are constantly changing. So the problem is that we have that idea to begin with, that some bodies have more value than others. And you know, even going back to our earlier discussion around disability, why is it that I believe that a disabled body is has less value than any other body? Is that person any less human than I am? Does that person have feelings in different ways than I have them? I don't think so. We're all interconnected. And when I see one group of people or one person as having greater value than others, I'm suggesting that that kind of hierarchy exists. And it's that sort of hierarchical thinking that harms us all. Because if I'm at the top of the hierarchy, I'm afraid of falling out of that top. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to spend loads of time and loads of money trying to stay there. And I'm also going to do myself the very great harm of oppressing other people. The worst because thing. I cannot <laughs> be at the top unless I am putting other people beneath me. And that is a very harmful thing to do, not only to the people who I'm putting beneath me, but also to myself. That's incredibly moving. I'm so glad you also do public speaking because you're, um, you have such powerful messages to share and your perspective is so, so needed. And when you were talking about our resistance to aging, it just brought to mind this, the energetic expression of that is just a tense clenching around what is and this unwillingness to embrace change, which can be such a human thing because the unknown is frightening. We don't know what is out there. And so we kind of want to hunker down and batten in the hatches around our current experience because it feels, even if it's not the safest, at least we know what it is. And then at least in my experience, in comes the ego and almost feeds on that fear and tries to convince me of all the ways that yes, you're right to hold on to these things and you should be trying to one-up yourselves over other people. And I, I watch that voice come in quite often. Um, and it's scary how fast it can come in, especially in when it's soaked in a cultural narrative of um, exactly what you're saying. How can we resist change and put ourselves above others and essentially almost resist reality? You couldn't have said it better. So you, you've just hit the nail on the head. When we resist change, we're resisting reality. Mm. You are going to grow old if you are lucky. If you're lucky, you're going to die. Everything that you know is going to go away. You will lose everything. And how liberating is it when we embrace that? That the change is happening and look at what we've done for all of our lives. We've lost things. We've lost things. We keep losing things. We keep losing things. And look at us. We're happy. We're joyful. We're (laughs) delighted. We can find pleasure. We're having a fantastic conversation. I may never have this conversation with you again. I may never see either of you again. And that will be a loss. But does that mean that we didn't have a fantastic conversation? Your children will grow up. They'll leave. 
And you want them to. You want them to. You want time to happen. And when we let time happen, when we acknowledge that change is going to happen, when we see the strong, resilient, wonderful people that we are, we can see the opportunities. We can adjust, we can adapt and see those as opportunities rather than as something that we need to be so frightened of. Because we have the confidence in ourselves. Melissa, your story is so wonderful because it's a story of strength. It's a story of adaptation and resilience and self-respect. How when you decided that you had to leave those activities that you realized were no longer serving you, you gave yourself the space and grace to reinvent and rediscover yourself. You've got, you've got me in tears again, David. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I cry I'm actually after a very happy guy. I'm a very yeah. happy No, it's not. They're not guy, sad. There we go. <laughs> They're not it's sad both. tears. Yeah. Sometimes we cry after the episode. I guess we just yeah. got a head start today. But yeah. I think that one of the things that comes up for me when you talk about how all of the isms are rooted in this belief that some people have more value than others, it feels also that there is a connection there to Dana mentioned the ego, the threat to the ego, the belief perhaps of the ego is that there's only so much room at the table. I don't know if any of these fears or these beliefs that we need to be at the top of the hierarchy would exist if we didn't somehow believe that there was only room for a few of us at the top or at the table or in, in the world, right? So I think of Maybe historically it was finding a mate or being selected for some kind of important mission. And now it's, it's all of the things, you know, as, as we encounter these things in the workplace and I don't think any of us have traditional jobs, but there, there can often be this sense that, well, I have to be competitive because Otherwise, I won't be chosen, right? I won't be the one that is allowed at the table. And so it's really profound to, to realize that that isn't true. It doesn't, it doesn't serve us to believe that. It just contributes to this feeling that some of us have more value than others. And so I should try to be one of the ones that has more value, that is at the top of the hierarchy. And instead, we can let that go. Our, our world is an abundant and generous world. And we can always ask ourselves, what's so great about being at the top? There's a good question. I think that you can be of great service, but I also think that it comes with great risk and great responsibility. And why shouldn't we all get to be at the top? Why shouldn't we all share that? I guess another question that kind of gets at the nature of reality is, can, can you exist independently? No, no, you rely on so many people. You rely on your world. You rely on your environment. You rely on the non-human entities within that environment, as well as all of the human entities in that environment. We are interconnected. And when we delude ourselves into believing that we're not, that's when we begin to think of, oh, well, I have more value than other things. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. No, you don't. Think about all of the ways that other people, people you don't even know, 
Think about all of the ways that you are supported by other people. How can we separate ourselves from all of those people? How can, how can we do that? If we have an understanding of what it means to be alive, of what it means to be human, and the very great privilege that that is. Well, your conversation, this conversation has us all emotional, which has me thinking about the emotion of um, movement and the energetics of movement. And I love that you recently posted a video um, about how you were using movement to grieve the loss of, a, of an animal. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful way to express emotion through movement. And can you just tell us a little bit about if that is a part of your methodology in coaching other people through movement, or is it something that just kind of organically happens as we move? I think to go back to what I was saying earlier, it's changing our minds about movement and changing our relationships with our bodies. So in the post that you referenced, I talked about how I, for the vast majority of my life, was pretty cerebral and, in fact, treated my body largely as uh, a vehicle for my head. <laughs> Basically, the function of my body was to carry my head around. <laughs> and what I didn't really understand then was the profound influence that the two have on each other. And this is also what I was referring to earlier when I was talking about how I am changing on a day-to-day -day basis, depending on any number of factors. Did I have an argument with my, with my partner? What did I get to eat last night? How well did I sleep? Did I remember to drink enough water? Did I just get some good news or did I just get some bad news? All of those things influence my relationship to myself and my relationship to myself is my whole self. So becoming aware of how my, my body influences how I feel has been a deeply transformational experience for me. I, I would say that what has made me the mover I am as much as anything else. So yes, consistency of practice and building the habit and just keeping on, keeping on has been a big part of it. But as much as, or maybe even more than that, it's the cultivation of awareness, the ability to be present and to notice what's going on and to not expect that to be the same all the time and to, to make myself available to adjustment and change. So it was interesting for me when Harris died to be overwhelmed, completely overwhelmed um, with emotion. And yet, because of, again, this word hierarchy, where we, where we feel that, that certain types of life have more value than others, and so, so, so many terrible things are going on in the world right now, I, I, I felt almost guilt or shame over being so deeply moved and deeply, deeply sorrowful, sorrowful over the death of a dog. And he's not even my dog. He's the, he's the dog of a friend. And the David of 15 or 20 years ago would have either just ignored that and pressed it down 
pretended that I wasn't experiencing it. I wouldn't have given myself permission to experience it. But because I've built the habit through my movement practice of curiosity and compassion and playfulness, although playfulness wasn't really a big part of this one, it was how can I explore what I am experiencing with curiosity and compassion? So yes, I'm experiencing this emotion and then I'm experiencing the secondary emotion around how I'm feeling around the emotion. Mm. How can I explore that rather than run away from it? And because I've learned to explore discomfort through movement, because I invite discomfort, I invite awkwardness into the movement, into movement, because that's where the learning space is. If I'm comfortable in what I'm doing movement-wise, it means I'm only doing what I can already do. I'm not really growing. And so I looked at this discomfort, this pain, this, this sorrow, and then the shame that I placed on top of it as an opportunity for me to investigate. And because I now investigate through movement, that's how I investigated it. And I moved, I moved with that for you know, a good hour. And spending the time with that emotion really led me to some profound understanding around how I really felt about life. Not, not, not just my life, but kind of all life. And, you know, put me in touch with my own mortality and the preciousness of my own life. And then the preciousness of, well, if my life is precious to me, then how precious are the lives of others to other people? And I'm sure that Harris, the dog, felt that his life was precious to him. And what, what gives my life any more preciousness than his life, right? They're both miraculous. I couldn't recreate his life. I can't recreate my own life. It's all miraculous. So can't I sit with that? Mm. And the answer today might not be the same as the answer tomorrow. Yeah. But through movement, I was able to come to a new answer and a new understanding, which will, because I am changing and evolving, will also continue to change and to evolve. Yeah. Mm. Well, I would be remorse if we did not ask a little bit about your perspectives on strength training and muscle maintenance, because it seems to be one of the primary things that, at least from my perspective and vantage point, experts say to build muscle while you can, absolutely strength train. It's the number one thing that will keep you healthy and vital into your older years. And it doesn't seem like um, working with weights is necessarily an integral part of your movement, at least not no, what I wrong. have seen. No, no, oh, okay. No. Okay. So, um, strength is integral to what I do. Fear of strength is something that a lot of people experience. And I would say that, that my target audience would basically be people who are a little bit fearful of movement mm -hmm. for whatever reason. But I strength, I train strength consistently and constantly. 
So either body weight strength, I, in, in the physical space where I teach, I teach a kettlebell program. Um, I, I, I do weightlifting with a bar. I would say that probably the number one thing, other than my curiosity, playfulness, and compassion, that has um, enabled me to explore other things would be an interest in strength and the development of strength. So it was through the development of strength, and I would say maybe at the same time some balance and coordination, that I became more capable of experiencing even more strength, even more balance, even more coordination, even more agility, all of those things. They are all interrelated, though. Um, but I, I agree with all of the experts, all of the studies out there uh, suggest that there are about four or five things that are the most important things as we grow older. So if I get all sciencey uh, with you for a minute, uh, sarcopenia, which is the loss of muscle mass and also the changes in muscle composition, starts to happen for most of us where, when we're in our mid-30s. So it's happening to you, it's happening to me, but it's one of those things, much like uh, osteopenia, which is the loss of bone density, that can be slowed. It, it can't be arrested completely, but it can be significantly slowed by exposing the body to certain types of stimulus. So here's the really interesting thing. This is called specific adaptation to imposed demand. And what this basically means is... The things that I do regularly with my body, my body will get really, really good at doing those things, but only those things. The things that I don't ask my body to do, my body, my body is incredibly efficient, and it will say, oh, you don't need to do those things anymore. So we're going to dedicate our energy to the things that you do need, and we're going to strip away from you all of those things that you don't need in the interest of the preservation of glucose. In other words, this is actually a life-preserving activity. But what that also means is unless I do certain things, I am going to either lose those things completely, although actually let's, let's revise that. I'm, I'm, I might lose those things over time and it might be more difficult for me to, to regain them. But there are things that I can do in present to slow that loss. So for example, if I keep moving my muscles, I am going to con continually ask my body to make a strength adaptation. So I'm basically telling my body, hey, you need to be strong in this way, and you need to be strong in this way, and you need to be strong in that way, which is why when you see me doing strength training, if you look through my my account, you'll see that I do a fair amount of body weight strength training. It's just I don't want to put the barrier up there of people feeling that they need equipment mm -hmm. in order to engage in that. But I do do a fair amount of strength training. Every time you see me do a squat, that is strength training. And I do squats a lot. I do hundreds of squats in a week. So asking my body to do these things in different ways is now recruiting all of those muscle fibers in different ways and basically having a conversation with you saying, hey, muscle fiber, I really want you to stick around for a while. Do you think you can do that for me? So it's simply having a conversation with my body. As we grow older, there are 
different types of muscle fibers and our fast twitch muscle fibers, the ones that enable us to put on bursts at speed, but not necessarily maintain that speed for a long time, those are the ones that go first, which is why when you see me jumping around or changing direction quickly, that's what I'm trying to encourage in my body. There's a, there's a, a sense out there, even among doctors, that only slow and gentle movement is good for the body. But no, if I want to be able to sprint out of the way of the oncoming forklift truck. <laughs> so I have saved my life quite literally three times in the past two years by being able to either change direction and jump out of the way. So I had to jump onto the hood of a car that was making a, 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 a turn and was turning right into me as a pedestrian. So I saved my life by being able to jump onto the hood of that car. And the reason that I was able to jump onto the hood of that car is because I practiced jumping. Because that was now reflexive in my body. And I have the capacity. Almost all of us can bring some bouncing, some jumping, some speed into our training as well. So to get back to the things that are really important, strength is really important. Cardiovascular um, work is important. Balance is important. But but only really certain types of balance exercises really help us. And those would be the ones that actually help us move through the world. So being involved in a balance task while we're distracted, mm. as opposed to standing in a single balance pose and being able to focus for a long time, that has tremendous benefit from a meditative perspective, but in terms of actually helping us catch our balance when we move through the world, not so much which leads me to the other type of balance activity that's really useful is practicing catching your balance. So intentionally disbalancing yourself and practicing catching it because that's how we fall. And in addition to that, which I've already mentioned, power. So power is different than strength. So power is the ability to express strength quickly. So it's the difference between being able to I guess, you know, really, really push something off of you with speed or being able to push it off very, very slowly. So that they, they're slightly different in the way that they, you know, recruit muscles and engage things from a neuromuscular perspective. So yeah, yeah, power all... would be what, power would be what's activated when you're responding to an emergency or a crisis. You hear the stories of people that lift a car off of a child mm -hmm. or something like that, which I'm sure mm -hmm. requires a, a lot of endorphins to yeah. an adrenaline and to make so, that happen. So, so that's, that's going to require a baseline of strength, but you also have yes. you know, the recruitment of, of, of adrenaline and other endorphins as well that, that, yeah. that, that make that, you know, miraculously possible. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. So, Let's maybe, as we wrap up this conversation, talk about what a few basic movements will be. And we won't be able to share those on the audio version of this, but we will have a video version that we can sort of add a little bit of content to the end. Um, I'd love to ask you about the sit-stand test, which is something that I heard about a few years ago in relation to observation of maybe different traditional cultures where you can see people 
are very able to get up and get down without recruitment of hands and knees, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the studies were done to use that as a predictor of mortality. So I'm curious your thoughts on that study or that test in general, but then also maybe we can include that in the movement practices that we talk about if there's, if you believe that there's benefit to that. Uh, certainly I want to have the capacity to do the activities that are meaningful to me on a daily basis. The sit to stand test is a surrogate marker. So what that means is it's an indicator of a bunch of things that can exist either together or independently. So, <clears throat> excuse me, the sit to stand test is going to tell somebody who is observing the person performing the sit to stand test a whole heck of a lot about strength, a whole heck of a lot about mobility, coordination, balance, all of those things. But the sit to stand test in and of itself is not the predictor of mortality. It's just a surrogate marker for all of those things. So excuse me, I need to cough. <laughs> so it's all of those things that are important, which can be developed together, but they can also be developed separately. One of the things that um, drives me a little bit, that, that, that really does send me around the twist, <laughs> is these movement challenges that place fear into people yes. or make them feel hopeless. So there's the cross-legged sit-to-stand test, which most people simply don't have the ability to do. But now they're told that they're going to live longer if they can do this test. Well, what conclusions are they going to draw if they can't do it? I can't do it. It feels impossible. I guess I'm going to die. And most people cannot do that test. Um, so I think that it's very important that we disabuse people of the notion that any one, uh, any one way of moving is going to be a predictor of either longevity or mortality. However, we can develop the attributes of physical capacity and we should be developing, well, no, I don't like the word should, but we can be developing all of them, but to the degree that they are going to serve us in our daily lives. Remember that my task is not to be a great mover. My task is to kind of like my life. And it so happens that moving is a passion for me, but I've also seen people who really have passions elsewhere in their lives and who care about other things in their lives way more than, than, than movement get so caught up in movement that they begin to sacrifice those other things. So it's, it's, it's a little bit of, 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 of losing, losing the meaning for the activity itself, which I think is always, you know, a little bit of a hazard. And we learn to cope with that hazard as we move through our lives. Some, some of us a little bit better than others, right? Sometimes we get caught up in things that ultimately when we pause and we take a look at them, we say, well, is that really all that meaningful to me? Do I really care about that? The other thing that I think we really need to, to be careful of is this idea of some forms of aging being quote-unquote more successful than others and how 
the way we tend to describe those types of aging as being, you know, more physically active. Well, what if physical activity really isn't all that meaningful to me? Maybe I want to have a baseline of physical capacity that's going to enable me to do certain things, but do I need to be able to do a chin-up, for example? Or to not be allowed to put my hand down when I'm trying to get up from the floor? Because that's what the synthesis, the stat test is. Can I get down to and up from the floor without either putting down a knee or using one of my hands? Really? Is it nice to be able to do those things? Absolutely. But I can also develop those things in other ways. So especially, you know, we're out here, the three of us in public, I think we need to be very careful about suggesting that there's a, a, a right way of aging and a wrong way. Because A, we can't predict all of the factors that are going to influence our aging. We don't want to reinforce concepts of ableism that we've already talked about. But I like the idea of, you know, being informed about what I can do around the aging process. And to get to our earlier point, how strength training really can slow down sarcopenia and really can help me to uh, retain fast twitch muscle fibers. Just like exposing my body to lifting heavy weights is going to help me with osteopenia, in other words, loss of bone density. These things are very real. Similarly, if I work out, um, I'm going to be at less risk of depression. I'm going to have... Uh, I'm, I'm going to be at less risk of um, hyperlipidemia or hypertension. In other words, high blood pressure um, or high cholesterol. I'm going to be at less risk of cancer. I'm going to be at less risk of diabetes. These are all true. Does that mean that I should devote all of my life to exercise? Nope. Because there is such a thing about exercising ourselves into misery. And I think a lot of people do it. So what gives my life meaning? Just living to X number of years is not quality of life. So let's look at what gives ourselves quality of life and, and try to make informed and intelligent choices around how we move so that we can have the quality of life that we want to have, but not necessarily be shackled by fear through what other people define as some sort of objective quality of life. Because I, 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 the, the, more I, the, the more I grow old myself, I'm not sure that such a thing exists. I'm not sure there is an objective quality of life. As we grow older, we grow more and more different from each other. And, and so what gives my life meaning might be f much, much different than what gives meaning to somebody who even looks like me or who has the same background as me. So there's a, there's a saying in the gerontological world, which is, you've met one 81-year-old, you've met one 81-year-old. Even just the fact that as we go through our decades, we are going to accumulate more and more and more 
things that are going to differentiate us. You know, the differences between two six-year-olds is obviously still immense, but there are less lifetime factors that are going to contribute to that differentiation. Yeah, it's pretty incredible to think about it from that perspective. I feel like we just got schooled. <laughs> yeah, oh. <laughs> we did. We just went Which to is school. apropos because your old your <laughs> business name is Old School Moves. So there you go. It's true. <laughs> Truly yeah. learned so so much about ageism in particular and the the narratives that we have that are incorrect around what what our bodies should be able to do at any point in our life. Yeah. So can we wrap up by asking you from this perspective that you share of moving in a way that gets you excited and interested to move again tomorrow? What would someone that like me that recently signed up for a Gold's Gym membership that and I'm, and I'm not using it or someone that has either no interest or capacity in doing that, what would a next step be to begin to move in this way? Mm -hmm. When I'm working with um, new clients, I try to get them moving in a whole bunch of different ways because most of us don't even know how we like to move. So the first task is figure out something you like to do. So I have a, I have a, I have a framework that I have taken quite freely and that he, he gave it to me. So I haven't actually stolen it uh, from a, a fantastic movement teacher named John Ewan, J-O-N-Y-U-E-N. And he likes to talk about nice to do and need to do. David, can I ask you to just start describing the framework again from the beginning, just because the the dogs are done barking? Okay. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry just back up that. just a tiny bit. It's no, okay. it's okay. okay. So a framework that I like to use is nice to do and need to do, which is a framework that I learned from the great movement instructor, John Ewan, J-O-N-Y-U-E-N. And it's a very powerful framework because most of us don't know when we're coming back to movement after an absence, or maybe we never really did know because we were always told that certain types of movement either were important for us or good for us or not appropriate for us, given maybe our gender or given certain sociocultural associations. Sometimes we can come to movement with no real sense even of the possibility of liking movement. So I like to expose my clients and when I don't know what to do on a, on a specific day, I'll, I'll just throw a bunch of movement at, at myself and say, well, okay, what feels nice to do? And I'll move in ways that are nice to do, but I'm also paying attention to something else, which is my body's a pretty wise body. What does it feel it needs to do today? So they're not often the same thing. So usually there's something that I find really pleasurable to do that is actually quite easy for me and, and comes fairly fluidly and easily to me. And at this point, I also know from experience the sorts of things that I really like to do. So I love rolling around on the floor, for example. It's not something that a lot of people like to do, but I love <laughs> to go to the floor. I'm a very grounded, grounded person, and I love being on the floor. Mm. No big secret to anybody who's followed me for any time at all. I don't like cardio. 
I don't like it. Just don't like it. But I need to do it. And I know that I need to do it. And I always feel better after I do it. So it's a question of balancing nice to do with need to do. And I'll even try to find some ways to bring more pleasure into that need to do. So finding ways of um, getting cardio that are more pleasurable to me than, for example, there's this one machine that I absolutely really don't like called an aerodyne. Um, <laughs> you know, are there, are there some ways for me to get cardio to, at that same level of benefit that I would do on the aerodyne machine? But sometimes it's just, okay, aerodyne it is today because I need to do this, but I'm also going to balance that with nice to do. So I'm paying attention to myself, even just in that assessment. So I'm already cultivating this idea of awareness that we've already spoken about, where it's not when I go to my studio or my practice space or my gym that I'm going to blast music in my, in, in, out of my headphones and try to turn off my brain in order to kid myself into believing that I'm having a good time. Mm. I love music and I always, always, always have music on when I'm practicing, but it's also always serving me. So the music helps me to become more aware of what I'm doing rather than to distract myself from what I'm doing. Mm. So becoming aware, do I like this? Why do I like this? Could I do more of it? How could I change it? How could I bring more variety, going back to the said principle? How could I bring more variety of this type of thing so I'd be offering my body different types of stimulus in this sort of thing that I really like doing? But also, what is my body saying? Oh, yeah, like when you do that, you sort of feel weak in the legs. So maybe you need to bring a little bit more strength training here. Or, wow, whenever you do that, you lose balance in this particular way. What kind of training for balance could you bring into this so that this thing that you like to do, this little bit of extra strength, this little bit of additional balance, or maybe being able to move with a little bit more speed or control or stability, how could I bring the things that I need to do in to support those things that I also like to do? I love that. It's, it kind of makes me think of how I used to go on runs, even though my body really didn't seem to like it. And I always set an arbitrary goal of running three or four miles and it would get my heart rate up. And I, I did like the feeling of overcoming a challenge, but recently what really brings me joy is sprinting around the house with my dogs and they love it and it makes us laugh. And it's just this game that we play and I could play it multiple times throughout the day. We could play for three minutes. We could play for 20 minutes. And it's such a different energy that I'm bringing to, to movement in my body. It's in no way punitive. It is just for sheer joy. And it gets my heart up and my heart pumping and my, my breath going. And I feel great like on so many levels. So I love that, that perspective shift of like and need. And how can you bring more pleasure into the, I need to get my heart rate up today. Well, well, nevertheless, not ignoring that there are certain things that, you know, if, if I want to maintain a certain level of capacity, which I do, still got to do the hard thing. Still got to do the hard thing. But that doesn't mean that I necessarily, I love your word, I don't need to be punitive about it. 
And there's a real acknowledgement here too, in so many aspects of what we've discussed, that it's going to change both our capacity mm -hmm. and our desire and the things that really draw us and that we love to do. I might love something now and not love it next year or in five years mm -hmm. or tomorrow. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much, David. This has been absolutely incredible. Yeah. We are so honored to have another Canadian in our uh, stock of amazing conversations to share, to share with the world. So thank you for being so generous with your wisdom, not just in terms of movement and how to orient to movement and our bodies, but also this much bigger and such important, such an important conversation around ageism and how we really feel yeah. about the value of our bodies and the value of bodies in our society. So thank you. Well, it was very much my privilege to be here. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for listening to This Is Aging. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share with others and leave a rating and review for us in iTunes or Spotify. You can also subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on all the social platforms at This Is Aging. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Please note the information shared in this episode is for educational purposes only and should not be considered a substitute for professional medical advice or consultation with a healthcare professional. In this episode, we may share links and references to products and services that may enable us to receive compensation from referrals or sales. This is Aging only recommends products and services that we use, love, and believe will be helpful to you.